Hey everyone, and welcome to Beyond GIS, the show that helps you leverage digital geography to make critical decisions in a changing world. I'm Kurt, your host and founder of Orbica, an organization committed to pioneering geospatial democracy. We're going to deep dive into topics like the role of geospatial and digital transformation, developments and opportunities in geospatial, space, earth observation, and helping you abolish silos for better collaboration and transparency and visibility. We're looking to drop a new episode every other Wednesday because we believe that everyone deserves to access and leverage the power of geospatial in the modern world. Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of Beyond GIS. I'm your host Kurt and uh, today we have a guest and a colleague on the show. Um, Another Kurt, believe it or not. Uh, (laughs) We talk about ourselves as K1 and K2. Um, but actually, this is Dr. Kurt Joy, and uh, I guess we're just going to have a free-forming conversation and see where it takes us. Kurt, so how did you land here? How did you land in this world of big data and earth observation and, and geospatial? Um, strangely enough, it was through caving. I got really interested in how caves in the Waitomo were linked, interlinked between themselves, where entrances were, and there was a a real lack of information about where these sites were. Um, so I kind of got really interested in getting a GPS, going to the entrances and trying to fit the old hand-drawn surveys that were made in the 1950s and 1960s and trying to fit them around these holes. Um, and through that, I discovered sort of GIS, um, sort of the tools available to both kind of map where these entrances were and where these old surveys were onto sort of modern topographical maps. Um, and so I kind of was always interested in that. Um, and in, I don't even know what year it is. 2005, I ended up going to University of Waikato and doing an undergrad degree in earth science, uh, sort of majoring in geology. Um, moved to Christchurch. And one year later, I was enrolled in a master's program to do work in Antarctica on glacial sediments. Um, and so as it always does, that turns into a PhD, and then you do postdocs, and you do various things. Um, but I've always kind of had that spatial distribution of data, and accessing it and, and building tools that use it has always been sort of really clear in my mind, whether it was collecting uh, hyperspectral imagery from a drone of algal mats by the side of lakes and rivers in Antarctica, or using 3D photogrammetry to build ultra-high-resolution mapping of human footprints um, to use in um, to use in management plans. So I've been kind of using spatial data mostly on for the last hey 25 years or so. Um, so yeah, so that's how I kind of ended up popping out of a cave and finding my way here 25 years later. So I think one of the things you've talked a bit about, uh, and Antarctica is amazing, but some of that work on the dry valleys and just the, the amount of data and the resolution and complexity of that data. And I know, you know, you're a technologist, a data geek like me, but, um, you know, what really got me when you first joined us was how to convert that into knowledge that sort of decision makers can actually understand, right? Like it's, it's not about how many sort of decimal points you have, yeah. but actually how do you convey it to drive decision making? So I mean, could you speak to that experience a bit and that yeah, journey? Yeah, one project we were working on was looking at how we can build management plans for the dry valleys. The dry valleys are this very 
old landscape. It's very complex. It's a mix between glacial sediments, lake sediments, bare exposed um, bedrock. Um, so how people operate in the dry valleys has usually been dictated by 30 or 40 years worth of history of, well, we don't walk in that because it makes a mark and we can see train tracks. Not train tracks, it's actually tractor. There's tractor trails that go all the way down from one end of the valley to the other that was put there in the mid-60s and you can still see it now. Um, so because this landscape is so old, yet quite dynamic, because it's a lot of the sediment transport is via wind, how people operate in these valleys needed a bit of a, a rethink. Um, so the project that I was involved with was with, with climatologists, biologists, microbiologists, hydrographers, all collecting data on various ways of how these valleys work and sort of trying to build a model around them so that when someone goes to a certain site in the dry valley, they know how close is it to drinking water, what sediments they shouldn't be walking on, how they should set up their camps, uh, what things they should be looking for. Um, and so you've got all the scientists building stupidly high resolution data sets. Uh, we had one person who was doing stuff with a ultra high speed thermal infrared camera at 300 frames a second. Um, so there's that kind of data coming out and he was looking at the boundary layer and looking at how air, air movement happens over these kind of heating lakes. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, the project wasn't about building all that data, it was about answering questions. If someone wants to go to a camp at one place, what is the, what, what's the outcome? What do they need to know? And this goes all the way up to, you know, government level, to central government, when they're looking at this area, it's, it's what they call an Antarctic specialty managed area, an asthma, which means you have to have permits to go in this area, and there's even areas where you need another set of permits to go in. So it actually gets signed off by one of the ministers. So they need to look at it and go, if this person wants to put a campsite there, is it a yes or is it a no? But the person beneath them, another layer of that kind of bureaucracy, wants to go through and say, well, what are the reasons for that? And sort of delve down. So I've always been quite aware of this top-down view of data and, and having the ability to kind of thin slice out what you need to know to who needs to know. Um, and so that was coming from the other side. That was coming from, you know, scientists collecting petabytes of data to someone who wants to click on a map and see a red or a Mm. red or a green dot so yeah so I've got sort of it's been a really interesting experience coming from sort of the big data to actually stripping it down and trying to find information from that big data when you've been uh <coughs> if you look at your journey in the last few years at Orbica <coughs> um we were working for multiple customers um, trying to make sense of data and drive yeah. decisions uh, inside their business um how do you sort of reflect on that world of sort of research and academia but then in the world we play in, which is how do we help sort of more apply the research <coughs> of the science to the yeah. actual BAU processes inside an organization day to day? Yeah, I, and uh, I mean, yeah, you're completely right. You know, it's that abstraction of information from data. You need the, the academic rigor, the publishing that goes along with it. So when you make a decision that's going to affect multiple people, whether it's financially or sustainability, they need to be able to make a decision using your tools that are based on the best possible data. You know, so you need to be assured that 
what you're providing through an equation or some sort of um, environmental measurement is actually telling you the right things at the right time. Um, and I think that is the, the big switch in the last few years is going from these big data sets where people were going through them and trying to extract value from them uh, and now having more tools like machine learning, artificial intelligence algorithms that allow us to sort of start extracting out some real information out of these complex and large data sets. Mm. I think you touched on, um, in, in a couple of the prior episodes, we've looked at sort of trust in the eye of the decision maker. Yeah. So lots of complexity, lots of math, lots of novel work sometimes yep. um, in terms of algorithms and how to expose and find value. That transparency, yep. I think you sort of touched on it then. Like, what does that look like from a sort of data practitioner or scientist perspective to sort of open the kimono in a sense and, and show people in a white box transparency yeah. way everything they've done, input data, processes, assumptions, pros and cons, limitations, so a decision maker's got that knowledge yeah. when they're making a decision. Yeah, and I, I guess it's that data assurance and that data quality. And what, what we see now is a lot of data sets that may have come down from a satellite, whether it's imagery, whether it's some sort of other sort of active data that's come down, and go through a, a, a series of processing steps when what we're seeing more now is larger organisations are taking that on themselves. Um, so they will take the data, they will clean it, they will prepare it and release it as something called analysis-ready data. Uh, and that's kind of the gold standard benchmark of that data being used for further analyses. You're making sure it's all calibrated, it's mm -hmm. all sitting in its right place in the world, it's had orbital corrections and a thousand other sort of micro-corrections on it. But what it allows you is that assurance that when you access that data and do something with it, you know that you're starting with a good product. Um, so there's been a big move to these analysis-ready data products, um, especially in the sort of the Earth observation satellite world. Mm. I mean, if we touch on, actually, let's go back a step. So you've touched on GIS, you've noted sort of Earth observation, geospatial. Um, what's your sort of view of, of GIS and kind of where it's been, what geospatial is, but then we talk about here this concept of sort of digital geography, which is the next layer in a sense of driving understanding and knowledge. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess I guess I've never really described myself as a GIS person or a, I suppose I'm kind of a spatial analyst, but it's it's about data filling the need to answer questions and not the other way around. Quite often we see data sets come out and people will go, I'm going to look through this data set and I'm going to answer a question. Where in all of these kind of domains we're seeing now, we, they're coming up with questions and saying, we need to find gravel extraction on the side of one of the Canterbury rated rivers. How do we do that? What do we need? What technologies even do we need to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. So you're also sort of driving algorithms, processes, even the data itself to answer a question. So not pulling data out and for data's sake answering something. And a lot of good things have come from that, but it seems to be more driven from the end users now rather than doing the analytics on the, on the data. Do you think it stems a little bit uh, 
if we look at space and what's happening in space again, the rejuvenation, I guess, of the space sector, um, launch cost, SpaceX, Rocket Lab, yep. um, enabling <coughs> access to space, which has lowered the cost of access to space. But now we're in a world, I think, of instead of putting up bus-sized satellites, um, to put up, you know, CubeSats. Yep. And that ability for a university to potentially design and launch a CubeSat, oh, but completely. focused on collecting data for the problem identified first. Yep. How are you seeing that happen in sort of the volumes of data oh, that they're, they're I mean, producing? Again, the, the kind of the CubeSats have really took, put a big spin on things where you can have, for relatively cheap, we're still talking sort of 50,000 bucks to get into space, Kiwi, but you have the ability to put, put science experiments into space. So it, again, it allows little questions to be asked relatively easy. How do crystals form under zero G? How do microbiology re mm. react when you're in zero G? Um, and that whole, as you say, the rejuvenation of the space industry going from these large bus size Landsat and Sentinel satellites, you know, the, the NASA, uh, USGS and European Space Agency kind of platforms. You're starting to move into smaller platforms and that also a move from one single satellite, mm. as we've seen with Maxar, when one thing breaks in your satellite and you can't save it, it's not being fixed in a hurry, um, to sending up multiple of a satellite, um, which forms a far more niche role, um, particular instrument that may only look in a certain visual mm. part of the spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum, but it allows you redundancy. And what is more important for this kind of big move about Earth observation is it allows that multi-temporality. We're yep. getting the revisits <clears throat> between collected information far, far higher, at a far higher cadence than um, what we see with the, mm. the big satellites. You know, we used to think Landsat was really good with, you know, a 16-day, two-week kind of revisit site. Then we had, you know, the, the Sentinels with a five-day revisit over a site. A and now we're getting s small constellations doing multiple sites multiple times a day. Um, so it's, it's really kind of opened the market to how people consume and how people um, get value out of these mm. data sets, especially in that kind of land use monitoring mm. and environmental monitoring sort of domains. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the high temp, well, we talk quite a bit about, I guess it's because it's imagery, it's visual, you can interpret it, that it's really easy to yep. pick holes in, um, you know, maybe that extraction algorithm to pull out those buildings is in 100%, the vertice is slightly off. Yeah. But actually, we're starting to now drive a narrative does the absoluteness of yep. the accuracy of your polygon you're pulling out of the imagery matter, or is it actually the change over time that matters? Yeah. Right? And so the trend. And so I think that is really interesting to think about, about actually the trend is way more important to yep. me driving decision-making processes in the business than having a one-off snapshot once a year of a perfect building outline. Yeah. So I, what do you, how do you sort oh, of frame I all mean, that in your... Yeah, I mean, that's... The, the accuracy of these satellites are pretty good, um, you know, considering it's a, basically a camera in space that's taking a photo through the atmosphere that gets fitted into its correct geospatial coordinates on Earth. Um, that sort of auto-rectification, if you need to move it, and the, the geo-referencing of these images is almost secondary to the, the data that's coming out at a temporal scale, and especially with instruments that either do multiple bands or mm. have multiple instruments on a satellite. Um, 
So whether that pixel is out by one meter or two meters doesn't really matter, but it's the fact that we can go back to, in the case of Landsat, back to the mid 70s mm -hmm. um, and have a look at what's changing over that area. Um, is far more important, especially mm -hmm. when you're looking at it sort of in the context of not just what we see with the naked eye and, and sort of red, blue, green space, um, but also outside of those and in the, the near infrareds and mm -hmm. the short waves and the thermals um, where we can start looking at skin temperature on the Earth's mm -hmm. surface temperature. We can start looking at water absorbance in plants. Mm -hmm. We can look at plants' health. Um, so all of these are sort of really interesting things that the spatial resolution on the ground isn't really important. Landsat's 30 meters a pixel, Sentinel's 10 centimeters a pixel. Um, they're still quite coarse compared mm. to a lot of the sort of the, the high resolution satellites that are coming out, which can go down to 50 to 30 centimeters on the ground. Mm. Um, but it's the long time period, the long series of records that are being captured by these platforms that are the mm. real interesting sort of, where the most interest lies. How has things changed over time is more important than where exactly has that change been? What? So in the world we live in, particularly in big government, big corporate, you know, big entities, um, a lot of the analytics and consequential sort of reporting <coughs> and dashboarding and stuff, it's all after the fact. Yep. So with what you've just talked about and that sort of temporal view, how do you sort of see advanced data analytics, AI, geospatial analytics, all sort of converging to understand the past, but actually more importantly, to help predict proactively yeah. the future, rather than going, hey, we did this awesome, I don't know, water quality monitoring. <coughs> if we knew that six months ago, when it was near real time, we would have made X, Y, Z decision. Yep. But hey, we got the report six months later telling us what we should have done, but that's again, useless. How do you see all that sort of converging? And it's it's interesting that, you know, the, the two sort of long-term open access, so these are data sets that anyone can jump online and get them, which are the Landsat program and the Sentinel programs, have both, they've both kind of been driven by that. Sentinel was, um, the Sentinel satellites were not put up to collect data, they were put up to support a program. And so we look at the Copernicus program and one of theirs is we need something to do ocean observation. We need something to do land class observation. Well, what do you need to do answer that? Well, we need a couple of satellites. Cool. We'll build satellites that do that. And in the case of Landsat, it's newer and better technology has come along, but they've decided that using a platform that has a continuous record back to 1970 and all this even though they're different satellites, they're mm. all designed to sort of fit within that same parameter, um, really kind of allows questions to be asked that probably wouldn't have been able mm. to do it if you had approached it any other way. Um, and so now we've got from 2015 to present for Sentinel-2 every five days. Now it's a big data set. It's 10 bands, it's quite a high resolution spectrally. Um, what things can you put on top that can be trained on past change to mm. predict things in the future? Can we build models that are sort of looking at these long-term trends that we see in these records? And you know, 2000, that 2015 to now is only seven years. It's not really a long-term mm. trend, but because of the temporality of it, it's still a data set that's good enough to sort of be able to sort of separate out 
trends from more seasonal effects on land cover, especially and ocean temperatures. Something we've been exploring lately, so you've talked a bit about lots of imagery, multiband, a little bit, you touched on hyperspectral. Something we've been exploring with and dabbling with is SAR, yep. um, synthetic aperture radar from space. Um, what's your view on it? You, you know, very quickly it relates here in New Zealand where, you know, it's the land of the long white cloud. Yeah. Um, <coughs> a, you know, it's difficult, particularly in the mountains, particularly on the West Coast, yep. sometimes across a whole year to actually get cloud-free yeah. pixels of our country. Yep, well, like we, everyone sees these wonderful pictures of New Zealand done by satellite, but it's actually the, it's either a statistical product of <laughs> multiple years worth of data or, you know, or even a single year of data. And even, I did one for New Zealand, so it's a, it's a full, full cloud-free mosaic of New Zealand. So it's using data from Sentinel every five days over an entire year. And there were still pixels that were empty that have always had cloud on them. <laughs> Um, so it's it's really hard in a country like ours, and it's kind of the bane of not just satellite imaging, but also aerial imaging, LIDAR, you know, you've still got to be able to fly in these conditions. Um, and water in the atmosphere basically obscures lots of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you can't see through clouds unless you use a technique like SAR, synthetic aperture radar, which uses an active sensor, it basically, it's, it's kind of the, the sci-fi version of a, the ping from a sonar um, in a submarine, you know, it, it mm. fires out a microwave signal which gets scattered on the surface and then collected back at the satellite. Um, and because it's microwave, it's not either in the visual or near-infrared spectrum, it um, can fire through and basically start resolving a variety of ground properties and surface mm. properties. Um, through fully obscured clouds at night, yeah, whenever it can mm. do it. Um, it's very commonly used in the marine security industry worldwide um, for picking up ships, especially ones where transponders have been switched mm. off and they suddenly deviate from where they're supposed to be. Um, these are these ghost ships. Um, so SAR can be used to track those because you've got a nice flat ocean and a big mm. shiny reflective thing floating around. Um, in New Zealand, I think it's going to be used more and more, um, especially we've done a few trials with looking at monitoring wildfires mm -hmm. using SAR. Um, again, wildfires in New Zealand, it's cloudy, it's got smoke cover. Um, SAR can see through all of that. Um, we can start seeing the disruptive nature of the fire on the surface it's mm -hmm. sort of consuming. Um, so it's a, it's a while it's an old technology, radar, sat, and there's been a whole bunch of satellites have been around for a long time, uh, I think its use is now becoming more and more prevalent in a whole bunch of different industries um, and domains. Um, and that just shows with the amount of new players in the, in the space operations scene um, who are launching their own satellites mm. and so when they're not just buying and selling SAR data, they're putting up their own constellations mm. of, of instruments to collect data constantly. Um, and I think, I think the highest resolution on the ground is about 50 centimetres at the moment, so day or night, right. 50 centimetre um, imagery. So it's a, it's a big field that's going to become more and more useful and not just kind of 
uh, land cover stuff, but also altimetry and, and building up high resolution 3D models of, you know, of vertical change. Mm. What, what do you, what's your view on why it hasn't been utilized too much yet? It, what are those sort of trends <laughs> going on that it's, you know, between knowledge and compute and actual data availability in the cloud, yeah. how are you seeing that sort of bundle together? To in, in SAR, it's, it's a complicated data product. It's, you know, if we think about multispectral stuff, you can kind of wrap your head around it going, well, you know, it's, it takes a photo on five different things and it basically it, five different images. Um, with SAR, it's because it's looking at the the reflection and the backscattering of a radio signal or microwave signal, the data is not so much an image. And even if, even when you get an image back, it's not something that you can interpret straight off the bat because um, there's different ways of viewing the data, there's different ways of processing the data, um, and it is quite time consuming. Uh, and while there are some companies out there that are taking free SAR data, um, such as what comes from what they call the Sentinel-1 satellites. Um, it still needs processing. Mm. It still needs a better eye on how to interpret it. It's a bit more complicated on the interpretation mm -hmm. of it compared to you look at an image and you go, oh, that area is blue. It's probably a lake. Mm -hmm. um, we can't do that with SAR because there are a bunch of different sort of factors that generate the image that comes out. Mm -hmm. Is it, I guess, it just has to go on the maturity cycle, I suppose, yep. to start to create some analysis-ready data products and for more people to focus on that. So yeah, exactly. A, I don't know, a data scientist can pick it up and actually use it in his workflow. Yeah, and there are some companies that are doing sort of relatively pre-packaged data mm -hmm. products, um, analysis-ready data products in a couple of formats mm -hmm. um, to look at certain things, look at water, roughness of the surface that's bouncing off. Um, so there's a few things that are already out there that can be used and applied yep. in different things. But like all these technologies, until people sort of start sitting there and start applying it and using it, sometimes you don't find the uses until mm. you just basically start playing with the data. I mean, at the end of the day, right, it has to go down the value chain so it can be understood by a decision maker, someone funding or in charge of an outcome in a business. Yep. And that, you know, geospatial as a whole needs to go on that journey. It's still very, yeah. you know, particularly the world of GIS, yep. it's, it's unknown. So I don't know, in your experience, um, you know, what's that journey look like again of that sort of silo GIS world, kind of where we've come from in a way, but then to the broader world of geospatial and democratization, like what Google Maps started in the consumer yep. world? to sort of where we are now about tri driving those outcomes into business and making it understandable about why space, place, geospatial, location, geography matters at a business level. Right? Yeah, we're, I mean, yeah. it's it's a really interesting time because, and I, usually I say Google's to blame for all of this because um, Google gave GIS to the masses. It made everyone in their phone, on their computer, use at some level mm. GIS data. They're interacting with the data, whether it's traffic flow, whether it's points of interest, whether it's the satellite imagery they look at um, in the background. Um, the world has got a lot of expectations because of what Google has done with that, you know? And we've had clients who go, yeah, but look, look at this. 
why are you telling me you can only get me 10 meter resolution imagery? I can see my dog in this. And then you say, well, your dog died two years ago. You know, this imagery isn't up to date. Um, so while it is high resolution, it's the, the temporality, the, the, the constant collecting of change, which is becoming more important. And, and that's really driving business questions. And because of those business questions, it's feeding back into what do we need to answer these questions? What data is already out there? Mm -hmm. What data can we fuse together with other pre-existing data mm -hmm. through that, that data fusion kind of process? Um, and how do you how do you use the petabytes and zettabytes and huge amounts of data that are out there? How do you start using that to answer questions that people haven't thought of before? People have probably thought of the questions. It's basically going, mm -hmm. what do you need to answer those questions? What data sets are available? What techniques are available? Yeah, it's interesting, right? It's so you need the culmination of so many factors coming together, I think, for a successful delivery of an outcome. So you might have the, 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 the lead asking the question. Yeah. But then what's that translation? So much is lost in translation of that through the deep technical people yeah. and between the business needs and the technical people. And then often beyond that, again, a silo GIS team. Yeah. How do we start to bring geospatial tools data to the fore? If you're working on a hydrology project, you need to know a little bit of hydrology. You know, you need to be able to talk the talk. So when the client comes and says, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to map river flow. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, okay, yeah, that's a stage value. We can see it going up and down. Cool, time series, that's easy. Um, but when you don't have that link, it starts getting far more complicated that things can get a lot fuzzier. And so the only way that can happen is through the collaboration between, you know, mm -hmm. the end user, the the subject matter expert, the people who are doing the analysis and the data itself. Mm. You touched on it then, you talked about sort of stage sensors and sort of um, river flow networks. And I know you're doing some work in that space, but we talked a bit before about sort of space for earth in a sense. You know, I'm really interested to internet of things yes. and connected sensors. Yep. Um, you know, what's your view on that? So there's also an in connection to the enablement in space. If we think yep. Starlink, for instance, um, you know, broadband every place of the, of the planet coming our way. What does that mean for the ability to collect real-time information of the environment, human interaction of it, to drive, again, decision-making processes? Oh, I mean, it's, it's key. You know, the more data you can collect at the surface, not only makes the data that you collect from space better because you can calibrate it, mm. um, but it also allows you to sort of start deploying things a lot cheaply. You don't need to buy data. You might be able to use cheaper data or free data off these satellites if you can calibrate them to the surface, you know. And a couple of years of working down at um, Antarctica, we would actually go out and we would be putting out these giant calibration tarps, basically four different colours, mm -hmm. kind of four or five metres across, spread them out. And that's for when um, Worldview was coming over and had been tasked to take imagery over us. They would be taking it at the exact time of day where someone would be going out with a handheld spectrometer and basically measuring the wavelengths of what's being mm. done so they can calibrate the satellite. Um, and so if you think about that concept with data products that are coming out of these for 
water quality, yep. all these kind of things, you know, by getting a combination of the the real sort of measurement um, to the sort of the the imagery that's collected, they can be calibrated together. Um, mm. That's where you start getting far more accurate orbital collected data for the for the questions that you're trying to answer. I mean, do you see a world potentially certain use cases you could have sort of automated calib um, calibration algorithms almost in a sense, yeah. real-time sensor networks, talking and working with the satellites, some AI model of some description in between, constantly adjusting and reinforcing and relearning yeah. based on you know new conditions down on surface. Yep. Which I think, I mean, what I'm really interested in is that fusion aspect of how do we extend the value of the pixels in space, so yep. to speak. Hey, certain networks in the right position to ground truth then allows us for proper interpolation yep. in a much broader area. Yeah, and that so, also brings into that whole computation on edge as well, which yep. is doing, you know, doing the the hard computation work, the data intensive stuff, doing it on platform mm -hmm. and space. Um, so then you're getting the derived outputs from that pushed to earth at a quicker cadence. So instead of, in the, I don't know, you're not pushing down cloud pixels, <laughs> Uh, we're dumping them out of the satellite yeah. and pushing down the data that's useful. Yeah, for. instead of collecting, you know, like, especially this is really important when you start going in from that multi-spectral where you might have 10 to 12 bands yep. going to hyperspectral, which is anywhere from 200 to 1,000 bands. If you're already doing some process up there, building a product and then passing mm. it down to the ground stations, you know, it's a lot less, it's a lot less data to push. So I mean that that concept of analysis ready data, we should be able to automate as much of that as possible. Yeah. So it's actually analysis ready the moment it's beamed to Earth in this case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, all of these kind of instruments, especially the optical instruments, need calibration. Mm. Um, because as we know, you know, when it starts getting to dawn and when it starts getting to, to dusk, the colour of the sun changes, therefore the colours you see on the landscape mm. are a different colour. Um, so it's those kind of things that need to be sort of calibrated out um, if you're trying mm. to actually start mapping things based on their spectral responses. I mean, there's an angle to that too, if we think about terrestrial data collected down here on Earth, and that sort of, we're looking at ESG stuff, right? Power, solar, carbon-free, thinking about big data centers. You know, we've talked quite a bit about, in previous episodes, so much data is just not oh. utilized. It's just sitting there on hard drives yep. in storage, and we're touching a percent of it, 5% of it, yep. the potential of it. So this way, I think, to find the value in the data and actually just get rid of the stuff we're not using because yep. there's no utility in it. No. I, I guess you could, that comes down to IoT sensors on the edge as well, down here. Why send data that's useless? Yeah. Derive the results on sensor, store and manage that and drive yeah. your big data center type processes. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you, if, and because of the sort of the new generation of embedded devices, um, and phones that have got mm. sort of GPU acceleration on them or libraries that we can start doing AI on it. You kind of step into that world of you know machine learning on edge mm. uh, where you can start doing a lot more of those smarter processes on the device before the, that data gets pushed somewhere, whether it's you know through up to Starlink and then back somewhere else or whether it's via a cellular network or mm. a, a radio network. Um, there's a lot of those kind of things that can be done there's a lot of things that can be done at the hardware level that allows the data to be quicker to mm -hmm. access, especially when it comes to real-time stuff. You know, before we wrap up, um, what do you think, what's one thing you're excited about in terms of, you kind of could really move the needle on, 
you know, propagating the value of geospatial into, into places it's not already and sort of driving forth this concept of sort of digital or modern geography in today's world. I guess it's just the ability for people to do things a lot easier now. You know, my first year down in Antarctica, I had Lima cloud-free mosaic stuff of Landsat. And I thought, oh, this is great. Look, I can see my glacier. This is cool. Uh, and one of the guys there goes, oh, well, I've just got some stuff from the Japanese space program and showed me this three meter imagery. And it was like, what? Where did, where, where did this come from? You know, and we now know that this stuff is out there. It's, it's easier to get. The, the amount of data that's being developed and, you know, downloaded and also developed into sort of derivative products is, is so much, there's so much data out there. And I think just the ability of anyone to kind of jump on Google Cloud, AWS, and start doing their own analytics mm. um, is pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing time to see, you know, what is available for people to do their own science and look at stuff from space for free. Mm. Hey, look, uh, thanks for your time today. Uh, enjoyed our chat and um, we'll see you around the office. Cool. Thank you very much. Alrighty, I hope that was helpful and you got some good content or ideas out of today's episode. If you have any questions, find me on LinkedIn, check the show notes below for the spelling and link or reach out to us at orbica.com and I'll catch you in the next one.